If you have your Bibles, open them with me this morning once again to the book of Philippians. We return this morning to a study that we began just last week, a study of this letter of the Apostle Paul, who, remember, sits in chains in Rome and is written to the church at Philippi, a Roman colony in Macedonia, just north of modern-day Greece. This church in Philippi, they aren't perfect. We're going to see that as we work our way through this letter. But this is a church that is doing particularly well. And Paul is so pleased with this fact. He, he loves this church. It's the first church that the Lord saw fit to plant through His ministry in Europe. And so, as we were reminded last week, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of optimism in this letter. Last week, we just looked at the greeting of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, and he reminded them of the freedom of being servants, the privilege of being saints, gospel realities for, for us here today in 2022 in Edmonds, Washington, for us to find joy in as well, no matter what our circumstances may be. Well, this morning we move ahead just a little bit in the letter. We find not only optimism, but we find this, this pastor's heart, this deep affection and pastoral warmth that Paul has for these people. And so we're just going to take the next little bit of this book of Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, reading down through verse 11. As is our custom out of honor of God's Word, I invite you to stand for the reading of His Word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Listen as I read. Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and take your seats. As the Holy Spirit carries these words of the Apostle Paul to us here today, it becomes more than just personal correspondence and affection from a pastor to his congregation, but it actually comes for us 
instruction and encouragement. And it reminds us of at least three things. Our gospel partnership, God's unstoppable grace, and the necessity of love. So I want to work through this passage looking at those three headings first. Our gospel partnership. Paul is obviously overflowing with thanksgiving. Every time he remembers this people, this church, every time he prays for them, his thankfulness to God flows. And it flows specifically from their koinonia. Now, I normally don't throw, just throw out Greek words to you, but that's perhaps one that you have heard before. It's a significant word in the New Testament. It's a significant word in our life together. Koinonia. And here it's translated in the book of Philippians into English as partnership. In other places, it's translated into English as fellowship. And oh, we know fellowship, right? Fellowship, like potlucks and prayer meetings, fellowship. I I read a statement this week that when a Christian has coffee with his neighbor who isn't a believer, it's called getting coffee. But when a Christian has coffee with another Christian, it's called fellowship. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of true. Because when Christians get together, there is something deeper going on. There is a connection that is much deeper. But actually, the fellowship that Paul talks about here, the partnership that Paul speaks of here, is much, much deeper. Much more significant. It's a sharing. And it's a sharing not simply of something, though the early Christians did plenty of that, it's a sharing in something. And so I'd like us to think about it in at least three ways. It's a shared striving. Paul says in verse 5, it's a partnership in the Gospel. Verse 7, that they are all partakers of grace. You see, when you're gripped by the same master, when you're servants of the same king, there is joy when you look at the world in largely the same way, through the same lens. And sure, there may be disagreement about the particulars of certain things, but in the things that really matter, in the fundamental things like who are we and why are we here and what is God like, those things we align on. And so there is a shared striving. There's also a shared suffering. Right? Paul's imprisonment, a shameful thing in that society, was not something that caused this church to turn their back on him. To the contrary, they actually invested in him. Raising money self-sacrificially for him. Sending a member to deliver that gift to him in prison. They are not ashamed of Him. And He will commend them later in this letter for standing firm in the midst of their own opposition. So there is a shared suffering that's going on here between Paul and the Philippians. Solitary confinement is 
Harsh for a reason, because it's solitary, because there's no one to walk with you through your suffering. Paul is grateful that he has the Philippians, if only from a distance. Shared striving, shared suffering. And lastly, and maybe more importantly, most importantly, a shared mission. This flows from all the rest. If you look at the world the same way, especially in the face of opposition, your your priorities will align. One writer says this, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to shared vision. You see, Paul, in a very acute and in a very personal way, he felt the church at Philippi holding the ropes. Remember that phrase, holding the ropes? Those of you who have been in Ascension for a while, we looked at it a long time ago. It's a phrase that actually comes from William Carey, a Christian missionary who served the majority of his life in India from 1793 to his death in 1834. And before he went, he cast a vision to those whom he left, to those still at home. He described the need for him to have rope holders. Figuratively speaking, as as he descended into the gold mine that was India in order to speak the good news to people who needed hope, he needed someone to hold the ropes for him. Someone who would support him as he went. That's what Philippi is doing for Paul. And that describes our function as well as the body of Christ, as the church that is ascension. With a shared striving, with with a shared mission, with a mission bigger than any of us, we we collectively hold the ropes for others. But not just that, we, we individually hold the ropes for one another. As some of you repel into Microsoft and into Boeing, into homeschooling and into caring for grandkids, into difficult family situations, into internal struggle, we live life together united by grace and mission. And so what I want you to see this morning through the words of Paul to the church at Philippi, is that our gospel partnership is supposed to be so much more than just hanging out. Even more than worshiping together once a week, sitting next to one another, joining in one voice. It's a fellowship, but it's, it's like a fellowship of the ring. It's like a united communion heading into the fires of Mordor, standing against all who are opposed. That's romantic. All you Lord of the Rings geeks, I just perked your ears up. It's easy to watch, and, and it's easy to 
to see that happen on your couch, but we all know in real life it's so much messier. Hobbits don't mesh well with dwarves. Elves, the elves just assume be left alone. Nevertheless, this is, this is the church that Paul gives thanks for. This is the church that, that I want us. That as your pastor, I plead with you to strive for. How might we, how might you recommit yourself to gospel partnership? That's the first thing I want you to see from these verses this morning. The second is this. God's unstoppable grace. God's unstoppable grace. It's, uh, it's January 30th today. How are those resolutions, those New Year recommitments going? We're, we're a month in. Not so good, I suspect. Just guessing. I say that because I know I am a person who struggles to stick with it. We are a people who struggle to stick with it. We start and we stop. We spark and then we sizzle. As Paul continues in his Thanksgiving prayer, he puts before us again in a very familiar verse to many of us, the unforgettable gospel of God's unstoppable grace. You see, Paul sees in the Philippians intentionality in partnering with him. He sees in that the evidence of God's work in them. It's all rooted in the God of the Gospel. And so here Paul extols a sovereign God. A God whose actions remind us that we dare not puff up in pride. As if we've done something. As if we've accomplished something. What does it say here? Verse 6. He is the God who starts everything. right? He who began, the English word used here is began in our translations. It could also be translated inaugurate. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. We who were dry bones on the desert floor, Ezekiel 37. We have had new life breathed into us. We talked last week about the origins of this church. Lydia, the seller of purple goods, is likely sitting there in the audience, in the congregation, listening to this letter being read. And she's there as a result of, what does Acts 16 say? As a result of the Lord opening her heart. The Philippian jailer, he may be there as well. And it took an earthquake to get his attention. God gets the glory for the start. He gets the glory for the spark. But He is also the God who sustains us. He not only starts us, but He sustains us. Paul prayed for the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1 as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you to the end. 
And then Jesus' words in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And this is one of the great images. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul reminds us, church, that our salvation is ultimately not up to us. The fits and the starts, the frustrations and the flameouts are no match for a God of unstoppable grace. Can I get an amen? He is the God who starts. He is the God who sustains. And He is ultimately the God who succeeds. Right? There's a day coming. It's already fixed. When the striving will be over and the rest will be ushered in. When Jesus the Judge will return to make all wrongs right and to make everything new. And Paul can rejoice in what he calls here in Philippians 1, the day of Christ Jesus because His standing, our standing is secure. We can do the same. Listen again to our word, the words of our Savior, John 6, for this I, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. 1 John 3, a book we recently studied, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. You see, it's, it's God's unstoppable grace that is undergirding our Gospel partnership. And that brings us to this response. And the third thing that I want us to meditate on, what Paul prays for in them, it's the necessity of love. The necessity of love. We all know that Valentine's Day is around the corner. Just a reminder, husbands, you got two weeks, get on it. I feel like the red and the pink started appearing in the seasonal sections of our stores on like January 2nd. It gets earlier and earlier every year. We've talked about love a lot in the recent months when we studied the book of 1 John, for instance. We talked particularly about how our culture misunderstands love. Of course, there is a time and there is a place for the kind of love that we celebrate on Valentine's Day, the romantic, emotional, feeling-centric celebration of love. I mean, Paul even here in verse 8 uses a word to describe his own feelings. He, he says the word affection. But even in that, do you notice what Paul's affection is attached to? How I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. You see, as a result of, of their intimate union, Paul and Jesus, 
Their hearts, we might say, their hearts are essentially beating as one. And so as Paul prays for God's people, what Jesus desires from those who are His is love. The Holy Spirit inaugurating our stories, igniting our hearts, and carrying our striving to love. I'll beat this drum again. Love is primary in the Christian life. Jesus in John 13, the world will know we are His by our love. But again, it's more than Valentine love. It's more than a feeling. While it might be born out of compassion, Compassion born out of our union with Christ. The love that Paul prays for must be accompanied by at least two things. Knowledge and discernment. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Let's pick this apart for just a moment. Knowledge is a word that's used 29 times, at least this Greek word translated here is used 29 times in the New Testament. And every time it refers to the things of God, to religious, spiritual, and theological knowledge. In other words, our love is built on and around what we have come to know and understand through the Scriptures, through the Word of our God. So ours is a love with knowledge. But it's also a love with discernment. A perceiving and grasping the significance of. We might say it's a discriminating love. It's it's seeing things clearly. The way I thought to characterize this is, is this is the head and this is the heart. This is the propositions of God and this is the people of God. This is love applied truthfully and compassionately. This is what he prays to see in the life of God's people. This is what we are called to be striving for. Evangelical scholar and pastor who's now with the Lord, John Stott, wrote this. He says, Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Truth makes love discriminating. And so Paul prays for both the gift and the motivation to love like this. Basically, he says, Work this in them, Lord. And why does he want this worked in the church at Philippi? Why does the Holy Spirit want this worked in us? Well, verse 10 gives us the answer. Work this in them, Lord, so that, verse 10, you may be able to approve what is excellent. 
Understanding biblical propositions and the brokenness of people will lead us to an ability to distinguish what's important, what's really important. The word approve there includes a proving process that leads to the best option. But what does he mean by the word excellent? You may approve what is excellent. How, how does Paul define this? Well, certainly, certainly moral superiority is included in this. Paul, Paul will write later in this letter in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, think upon these things. But there is also a notion here as we need to have discerning love that approves what is excellent, there's also a notion of what is more essential. I'm going to quote one of my seminary professors again. He says this on his, in his commentary on this word. Jesus used the term that Paul employs here to affirm that human beings are superior to sheep and birds, or as the ESV translates there, of more value. We're talking about the word excellent. Therefore, Paul longs for the Philippians not only to choose the path of obedience, but also focus on more important issues and keep less crucial points in proper perspective. And we know from the Scriptures that the churches in Rome, the churches in Corinth, they both struggled with this, condemning believers who ate meat, for instance, that had been sacrificed to idols. We can read about that in Romans 14. They, they weren't breaking God's commands, but they were choosing different paths based upon their Christian liberty. In other words... Paul is reminding us, not all of our differences are worthy to be raised to the level that we're raising them. This is evident in this time and place more than it has ever been, at least in my ministry. And our enemy is having a heyday in the church, in the life of God's people. So let me get real pointed with us this morning. We all agree that the Bible calls us to love our neighbor. That's not disposable. That's not debatable. But whether that looks like masks and vaccines and the public policy that accompanies those, or whether that looks like protests and refusal to conform and the public policy that accompanies those, on these things it is clear that God's people have and continue to disagree. And of course we all, myself included, in our pride, everyone thinks that theirs is the right way. How can you think otherwise? But Paul prays for 
He prays here for knowledge and discernment, for an understanding of people and propositions, for a love that knows what's most essential, what's most vital. You see, there are two extremes for us to avoid as we grow in this love. One extreme is that nothing is secondary. Everyone must look like us and think like us in everything. And so we end up majoring in the minors. And the other extreme is that nothing is primary. Everyone is included under the auspices of niceness. But neither of those extremes is helpful for the kind of character that Paul prays for here. Only an abundance of discerning gospel love can hold our diversity in partnership together. Again, this is not easy. We've been fighting for this. We will continue to fight for this. And at the end of the day, hopefully sooner than later, will come the day of the end. That's how Paul closes the prayer. The day of Christ is coming where we'll need to be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so while Paul prays for our love to abound more and more, he prays for evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, no amount of fruit will be enough. Paul has already brought up the name of Jesus seven times in these opening verses. It's because it's not possible without him. Gospel partnership, grounded in God's grace, revealing itself in love, it's all dependent on Jesus. So in our striving, we must keep Jesus at the center. He is what's most important. I want to close with a quote about Him. Jesus is the avenue through whom God will answer Paul's prayer for his friends. Jesus is the conduit through whom God pours overflowing love with discerning wisdom into their thirsty hearts. Jesus is the wellspring of life from whom they are absorbing nutrients that enable them to bear the fruit of peaceable righteousness. May Jesus be at the center of our life together. May the gospel be the fuel that keeps us in partnership with one another, loving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You most of all for Jesus, the One whose eyes of compassion we need, the One whose patience we need the one whose spirit we need to know what is the excellent way 
to know what you call us to be about as your people. Oh, Father, we thank you for Paul's heart and his affection for this church. May we grow in our love and affection for one another as we center ourselves on you, Jesus. Oh, make it so by the power of your Spirit, we ask, we plead. In Jesus' name, amen.